Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. Dewani Shaw. Dr. Shaw is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, clinical associate faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and faculty member at the Psychoanalytics Center of Philadelphia. He joins us today to talk about his new book, The Analyst's Torment, Unbearable Mental States in Counter-Transference, published in 2023 by Phoenix Publishing House, their imprint, Firing the Mind. Dr. Shaw, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. So this is a psychoanalytic podcast, so we begin with the, the question we ask all of our authors. We are strangers to ourselves, so as far as you know, what was your motivation for writing the book? Yes, well, before I get to that, I just wanted to say I'm so pleased to be here, and I've been, a, I guess, a, a mega fan of new books in psychoanalysis for the past several years, and I've been listening to so many of the podcasts, so just to be able to be on this program is a huge honor for me, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I was thrilled that uh, that I saw your book and and you came and spoke at our institute. So this is uh, this is going to be this is going to be fun. Yeah, um, yeah. So you are right. We are strangers to ourselves, and how this book came about is a bit of a mystery. But I I was thinking about it, and I, I think the way it started was um, I'll go back to the very beginning, but I'll be brief about it. I might. My mother is actually a conceptual artist, a um, sculptor, and my father is an internist. And I feel like throughout my childhood and my life, I've always been interested in subjectivity, aesthetics, art, um, but also objectivity and trying to figure out, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, how to find objectivity and subjectivity. <laughs> so I started off being very interested in how the mind works, psychoanalysis, um, really took me in that direction of really wanting to understand and know. Um, and it felt like it had some kind of knowledge that I've always been searching for and looking for throughout my life. Um, so it really started with this wish to know um, and understand. And then uh, just to share a personal uh, story, which I think is important because it it really does affect how I wrote the book and where I went with that, is when about... I would say about uh, 14 years ago, my son was born. And when he was two years old, he lost all of his speech. And uh, he got the diagnosis of autism. And he uh, essentially is now nonverbal, although he has some ways of communicating. But that whole experience for me really changed me um, profoundly. It changed my practice. It changed my whole attitude about life um, and about this search for knowledge that I described before. Because... I think prior to that all happening, I really had this fantasy that I could understand things, I would know things, and then I would be able to treat my patients, heal them, heal myself, um, overcome all of these things that I think were ghosts from my own past. But after that happened, I, I think uh, two things happened. One is I had to learn a different way of being with him that was nonverbal but also a way of relating to him and emotionally being with him that didn't involve knowledge. And I started to realize that a lot of the ways in which I thought were helpful to patients were really not, and including helping him, was more my presence with him, my way of being with him. And what I began to realize, too, is what I was like when I was with him and what got in the way of really me being able to be with him. Because there were times when I would be angry or I'd be upset or I would be kind of dissociated and I wouldn't be able to actually be present with him. And that had a profound effect on him. And I started to realize that was the case too with a lot of my patients and a kind of different way of, I guess the way to think about it from, well, the way I was thinking about it was it was kind of a shift from epistemology and kind of knowing and needing to feel like I knew to a more way of being and creatively being alive and being with him in a certain way and with my patients Um, So that was one thing. Um, The other piece of this was that whole experience also uh, helped me, um, I think, dismantle a lot of the omnipotent fantasies I had about myself, about my life, about my ability to know. And it brought me to a more place of being able to learn how to painfully accept emotional truths as opposed to trying to conquer them or change them. 
And that affected my practice. And, and you can see resonances of that in the book as well. Um, and I also realized that, you know, there's a lot written about this in psychoanalysis, but it's all in kind of disparate places. And often the advice to us about our own countertransference, just to get back to that, is um, we'll talk to a supervisor about it or talk to your own therapist about it. But I wanted to write something more from the heart about what really gets in our way of us being able to be with patients and what are the ways in which we can actually talk about that. So that's why I organized the book into those different chapters and wrote about them specifically, because I felt like it was a more hands-on way of really getting into it, as opposed to just speaking about it more generally. Well, this is, uh, obviously, thank you for sharing that, because it, in a sense, it answers uh, the question I wanted to start with, but I want to read at the beginning of the book um, a sentence that, it's the first sentence in the introduction, but it kind of floored me. It says, there was a time when I thought that my patients lived in a different world than I did. And I sort of set that down and walked around the room and I'm like, and I was going to ask you what, what moved you from that thinking to the current thinking of being with, but you just answered that. But to the power of countertransference, um, I want to share, um, two things here. These are both, uh, Freud from 1910. And the first is in March and the second will be October. So in March of 1910, he writes, uh, while the patient attaches himself to the physician, the physician is subject to a similar process, that of countertransference. This countertransference must be completely overcome by the analyst only this will make him master of the psychoanalytic situation. It makes him the perfectly cool object whom the other person must lovingly woo. Um, so that's Freud in, in March. However, in October of 1910, writing back uh, to, to Ferenczi, he says, this is a weakness on my part. I am also not that psychoanalytic Superman whom we have constructed and I also haven't overcome the countertransference. I couldn't do it, meaning to Ferenczi. He says, I couldn't do it just as I can't do it with my three sons because I like them and I feel sorry for them in the process. <laughs> so that's one you know, Now, this is obviously before dual drive, before the First World War. This is still libido theory Freud. But, you know, here's the guy creating the entire discipline and laying down the rule. And, you know, 10 months later going, I can't do it. Yeah. And that real struggle with what to do with our feelings, what to do with what our patients bring to us and how we feel and how they, how our bodies reverberate and how our emotions reverberate with our patients. Yeah. Well, you talked about the, with your son, with the being with, um, part of the training, um, at, at my Institute and this, this went away with the pandemic, but we would do a field work placement, or you'd go into, you know, day rooms um, uh, of, you know, day rooms with uh, patients. Um, and the goal is just to sit with them, right? You weren't doing it. You certainly weren't analyzing. You weren't treating. But just to sit with. And that just sit with. And um, and see what was what the induced feelings were. Um, yes. I was, I was thinking about that in, in terms of forensic, too, because I feel like in many ways, he was our um, kind of forefather for this work on the countertransference, where um, I really like, you know, in many of his writings, he talks about allowing us to kind of feel and let the patient's um, affects and feelings and fantasies rever reverberate through us, but then for us to be also critical about how we are with them, critical meaning observing and thinking about what's getting in our way and what it is doing to us and how it is affecting us that kind of simultaneous process of being with and then also trying to kind of observe and understand how that being with us is affecting us. Yeah, and I think I'd sent this to you just as he's at the top of mind here, um, a wonderful uh, quote from him where he says, the concomitant interweaving of transference and countertransference gives the impression of two equally terrified children yes. who compare their experiences and because of their common fate, understand each other completely and instinctively try to comfort each other. So yeah, he's uh, beautiful on that, but let's go into the, the book. 
um, the uh, the first chapter is on arrogance, and I think that that maybe the you know Freud helps us get into that the arrogance that we could master data transference. Um, but I'll ask the 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 question um, one of the questions in in the chapter if you can talk about um, what is the effect of our arrogance on our practice? How does it affect our practice? Yes. So um, uh, this chapter was inspired by Beyond's paper um, on arrogance, which is an enigmatic and really interesting paper. Um, But just to kind of boil it down in the way I think about it, uh, I feel like the arrogance that we carry, and it doesn't have to be all the time, and I'm not talking about specific narcissistic personality disorders. I feel like using those kinds of terms sometimes disavows our own moments of arrogance and ways in which we are arrogant with our patients that can take on many different forms. But I feel like at the heart of it, we close ourselves off to our patients when we're in those kinds of modes of being, where the material, the being with can get dried up into intellectualisms and almost ways of being with them that are not fully alive. Yeah. Um, and, and then there was uh, something in that uh, chapter where you write the, the manner in which we can arrogantly transform people into cartoon characters for our arrogant purposes. Um, you know, and I was thinking about that. I've had many lives before landing on one as an analyst, but I, so many disciplines need to establish themselves by a cartoon character, a straw man. Um, you know, the bad parent, whatever, which we talk about in the jealousy chapter. Um, and I think that in doing so, we are closing ourselves off to what's happening, you know, right then and there. Right. Um, where, where I feel like that's really important is is in, in kind of Beyond's work, too, of be, us being able to actually live through and be with our patients' intense, sometimes almost unbearable affects and feelings and fantasies that when we can't do that, when we can't really be there in a certain way with our patients and bear what they're feeling and saying, we can resort to these kinds of arrogant ways of being to protect ourselves. But then, like you said, it dries up, it becomes like a cartoon. I mean, one other thought, and I know we've, uh, this is in the book in different places, but there's this kind of way in which the, cartar- the cartoon can become our patients and we can make them into the, to the cartoon. Then we could also make their family members or their loved ones into cartoons. Um, and then in the end, when that doesn't all work, we often make ourselves into the cartoon and we beat ourselves up and kind of almost one dimensionally treat ourselves as bad objects um, also. So this can go around in different ways when we can't really tolerate just the complexity, the confusion, the blurriness, the difficulty, all of the feelings that are brought up there with us and our patients. Yeah, I was thinking of um, there's a wonderful a quote by uh, Martin Cooperman, where he says, in psychotherapy, the patient comes with his symptoms and the therapist with his technique. And if things go well, they both come out from hiding. <laughs> I love that. That's I really wonderful. love that too. Yeah. Um, but the, the, but the, the, but the, in a sense, the dual cartoon yes. of us and, you know, the patient, um, and I, I, I've had a, a ver- and and the fact that you may not, we may not even be aware that we're performing analyst and patient. Um, this has happened in in different ways um, throughout uh, my my years in practice, where maybe two years in, and and there has been affect there. You know, people don't come with nothing to talk about, but a version of this question where there's a shift where let, let's say it's two years in and a patient has was said to me, can I tell you something personal? <laughs> you right. know, and, and yes. you know, uh, yes. I'd like, ah, oh, okay. Now we're, um, now we're, now we're in it. Yeah. Now we're it's in it. Yeah. Sometimes it takes that long for people to mm-hmm. overcome their shame, their, their anxiety about really being present with us. And sometimes it takes us that long too, to be able to get to a place where we can be with our patients in that way where they can kind of intuitively see that we're in a place now where we can accept what they really have to say, as opposed to what they feel like they should say. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, the, if we go to the, the classical, the, the, you know, the, the, the duty of the patient is to say everything. 
But if they have a sense that we can't hear everything, they're not going to say anything. Yeah, exactly. And I sometimes think that we um, idealize that that idea that they can just say everything, and we say, "Oh, the, the you know the golden rule, whatever." But it's so hard, and all of us in treatment know that. You know how hard mm-hmm. it is to actually free associate. And in fact, that's probably the end point more than the starting point. Right. Well, that's Adam Phillips who says patients are not cured by free association, but by the ability to free associate. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, Two words that I've never seen uh, put together in this chapter. Um, What is healthy arrogance? Oh, (laughs) yeah. I, I struggled with that a bit and I wasn't sure how to talk about that. But I did feel like there are times, especially when you're younger and in training, it almost feels to me like you do need some kind of way of feeling arrogant and being arrogant as a way of sustaining your sense of self and creating a kind of separateness from yourself and your teachers and others around you to kind of create your own way of being. I feel like it's an intermediary stage. I saw this a lot when I was in medical school with other residents and medical students. It's almost like they put on the white jacket and they have to almost play doctor and mm-hmm. act that way. And the nurses are, you know, interestingly, the nurses are always very kind of amused by this or annoyed by it. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, he's just playing. Uh, yeah. Let him just do his thing. You know, he's just trying to be a doctor, but they, they're usually very, uh, uh, well, they can be kind about it because they kind of understand on some intuitive level and, and same with the teachers that you need to kind of go through that stage um, in order to kind of get your bubble burst at some point where then you kind of join humanity again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I was thinking, you know, sort of my question on the, you know, your, your book says, you know, how does, how does arrogance affect our, our practice? And then I thought, can we practice without it? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, and then there's I mean, all this blurriness, right? Between certainty, arrogance. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because who, who, who are we to say, yeah, I can do battle with the drives. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> that's absurd. I, I think that's part of the reason why I put that in the chapter too, because I didn't want the people to get the impression that, like, I was saying that there should never be any arrogance in the world or something like that, because it's it's a human it's a human uh, state of mind, you know. Right. Yeah. So that's yeah the humanness, and in fact, you know, the chapters are given um, in a sense. You know, the the subtitle is uh, this is on analysts' torment, unbearable. The chapters are you know uh, arrogance racism, dread, jealousy, shame. Um, but these are all extremely human experiences. And, and are we are we up to being human? And in fact, in the arrogance chapter, Molly, the, the case study, uh, accuses you, you're saying things out of a book. And patients sense when you're techniquing them. They really do, don't they? Mm-hmm. And I, I especially think that's actually become more over the last 10 years or so when everything you read about wellness and health, it, they're all kind of framed as these kinds of psychologisms. And everything you read about psychology has this kind of narrative and a way of talking in a kind of psychological discourse that patients have become very um, inundated by constantly. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they can tell. You know, when you move into that mode of being and they they can sense your anxiety about what they're saying. And when you move into those states of kind of regulating them with your psychologism type of discourse. Well, to go back to the beginning of this interview, when you've left them, when you're no longer with them. Right. Exactly. Right. Which is we do. And, and again, like like you said before, we do that all the time. And that's it's it's more a matter of becoming aware of it, because um, as I wrote in the chapter, I mean, I feel like arrogance is an is a non-reflective state of mind. So it's important to kind of move from that into a more reflective state of mind. Um, but it's a human right. I think that's around the 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 idea of unchecked curiosity. Oh yeah, right. I found that an interesting idea too from Beyond that not all curiosity and, and Warren Poland too writes about this really beautifully. That unchecked curiosity can actually be more about your own desire than it is about helping the patient. Yeah, in fact, okay, so I'm really glad you brought up War in Poland because there's that incredible, um, I'm going to flip here to page 89, chapter on dissociation. So if we, you know, the book begins with, hey, I thought I lived in a different world than my patients. That's how the book begins. And then, um, you let's see, uh, 
you're writing about Helen, uh, Warren Poland reflecting uh, on his 50 plus year career as a psychoanalyst notes that the hardest thing to learn is also the most obvious that the patient is somebody else. That to me is such a profound comment that really struck me. And it's so obvious, but if you hear people talking about their patients, and I hear myself talking about my patients sometimes, especially when I'm anxious, especially when I feel like I don't know what I'm doing or I'm worried, I feel myself starting to talk about them as if they're not a separate human being. Than mm-hmm. me. It's startling. It's really startling. Well, sure. Well, I mean, that takes us back to, you know, Ferenzi, we're both here terrified together. And of course, the desire right. for merger. Exactly. You know, Um and this whole because, dialectic between separateness and, and intimacy and merger, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but that Warren Poland thing, yes, it's a different person. <laughs> and you know, of course, I read that. I'm like, oh, yeah. And I, you know, I go back into my office and I'm like, you're a different person. Like, it's right in front of my mind. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, oh, this one is, quick thing, one quick oh, thing sure. about that, which I, I really like too, is that also helps us understand the, the kind of unknowingness of the patient or the kind of alterity of of their being where we don't just assume that we know what they're thinking or feeling, or we can kind of psychologize their, um, them into something that they will reveal to us what they are through their discourse and through their ways of talking to us and being with us, that it's unknown, it's unfolding. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's so important for me. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I could just we could just sit here and tell stories about that. <laughs> we yeah, right, get to the right. rest of the book. Um, the second chapter, uh, which um, has just so much to it, is on racism. Um, and again, uh, you write, we might never meet a full-blooded racist in our clinical practice. But if you do not come across any racist or prejudiced parts of yourself or your patients, you have not been paying close enough attention. <laughs> yeah. <right>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I talk about this like dilemma here with racism, because on the one hand, it's so it, there's so much trauma and racism, obviously. And I talk about that in detail about, you know, what it's like to be subject of a racist attack, racist society. On the other hand, we all have racist fantasies, feelings. Uh, it's just so common um, in all of us. So that collision between those two facts are, are really disturbing sometimes in the analytic situation, in the therapy situation. Well, you you being it, being so caught in it because you you write about your own experience of um, being racialized. You, and there's two stories: one in session, one out of session, and you tie them together but that you're trapped between speak up or defend, speak up and defend or let go. And that you're right. You're trapped in either direction. Yeah, exactly. It's this kind of do or done to binary thinking. Only there's only two choices. Sometimes it feels like in those situations, speak out about it or submit to it. And that's an impossible situation to be in, in a therapeutic space with a patient. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit, because it's, it's an extraordinary uh, case study. Can you talk a little little bit about what happened with Kay um, and, uh, and how you get to, we're on this train together? Yeah. Because it's, it's really remarkable. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It, it starts off um, with her making a racist comment towards me inadvertently about dirty Indians on a train. And then it moves to me really wanting to kind of, and I tried to kind of use a phenomenological approach for lack of a better word, really kind of dive deep into like what that was like for me and how that felt for me. And I, I try to trace what I said to her and why I said it as a way of in some ways hiding from her, but also wanting to convey my hurt and anger towards her. And I try to break down what happened there between us and how I actually recover from that and get to a place where I can be more in a place of being able to be free to play with her more with that comment. But that's a very difficult road to take. And honestly, it's not always um, as 
<laughs> as as it's written, you know, but it, it I think it is an important way of kind of moving past the projective identification and the kind of um, racist fantasy that then got put on me that kind of closed me down to being able to then get in a space where we can actually talk about it and she could open up about it and we could actually get into it with her. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought it's interesting because um, at one point she, you know, now it's, it's out there. She's, you know, berating herself. Oh my God. Now you think I'm a racist. And then she says, are you going to fire me? And I've always been fascinated. This of course speaks to transference. It speaks to the asymmetry, but the patient has hired us. Yeah. You can quit, but you can't fire them. They're the employer in a sense. Yeah, right. That is interesting. Yeah. But in this, yeah, I, I, yeah, there's so much to say there. Did you have another thought about it? Because I, I have so many thoughts well, no, about it. But this yeah. is, I, you, you hear this, um, I've heard this uh, recently. Someone said, oh, my first analyst fired me. And of course, it speaks to the asymmetry of transference, of, of, of course. But that sense of powerlessness um, and uh, that you have no say in the matter, um, that the person who decides that the relationship continues or not is the analyst. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, this. I, it's, we sometimes forget how vulnerable, our, and, and this is especially important in this day and age, I think, where... There's so much policing of language. There's so many people being outraged by what people say and how people say it. For there to be a place where you can truly say what you feel and really say, even if it's going to be racist or violent or mm -hmm. sexual, uh, to be able to say or transgressive, to be able to say it and put it into words takes tremendous courage and vulnerability on our patient's part and takes a lot of work, I think. Um, on both parties to get to a place where that could actually even, even somewhat happen. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there, there's so much terror around it now yes. um, that to go back to the idea of say everything is people really don't believe that you mean it. Exactly. Forget, forget, forget the impossibility of it that we're pursuing. <laughs> but, exactly. you know, but people don't even um, believe we actually mean what we're saying. And, and to be, to be honest with you, in, when you go to case conferences and you hear people speaking, when I talk sometimes too, I wonder if I believe it. There are things that maybe I don't want to hear or I can't hear. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess we have to be honest about that as well, because there are some things that I've heard patients say that I can't unhear and they'll, they'll haunt me. You know, they, they haunt all of us. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I made a, a clinical error earlier this year where I, somebody was on the precipice of saying something that was unsayable uh, certainly couldn't be said in public. They'd be canceled or it was. And I, um, I got a little too with my unchecked curiosity and I helped them to say it. And then the next week they quit. Uh, yeah. I, I got a little ahead of them. Um, I've, I've had a similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are the two facts about racism that you feel impossible to resolve? You write about destructive and ubiquitous. What is impossible to resolve about the facts of racism? Yeah, I, it, it's it's what I alluded to earlier, which is about its ubiquity, where it, it's in all of us. It it courses through us because it's in the mytho-symbolic universe that we inhabit. It's in the, to use the Lacanian term, the treasure trove of the signifiers that we all are born into. So there's no way around it. And not only that, it, it ra racist um, ideologies and uh, racist ways of being are very much connected into our fantasy structures and our drives. So oftentimes when, when there are, are drives being represented, they're often through a lot of racist imagery. Not often, but it happens a lot. So, and also aggressive drives. So we're almost framed to be racist in many ways, but at the same time, it's, it's incredibly a painful, destructive act that um, brings people further apart from one another. And it's, it's obviously something that, um, is something that is, has been tremendously traumatic um, on a societal level and on a personal level. So I think that's what I was talking about, the collision of the ubiquity and the trauma and the pain of it. I, I noticed, you know, in, in reading the book and then I, you know, reread to pull questions and themes, ubiquity, the term ubiquity and full-blooded <laughs> show up in the racism chapter and the shame chapter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yes. Yeah. Well, you talk about, in, I mean, I think you reference, I know you reference in the book, you know, Fonkry Davids, who talks about the racist right. state of mind. He's been on the program, but right. he, he asks, of course, a, a very psychoanalytic question because he takes the sting out of it. He's like, well, what's so terrible about being racist? Yeah. Right. And it's like, oh, and if we, if we say there's a racist state of mind, then we need to, uh, we need to know it the way we know our narcissism. Yeah, I really appreciate his courage in being able to say that and be honest about it because otherwise it turns into a paranoid schizoid projection, right? Yes. Where other people are racist, they're not, we're not the racist, they're the racist, or this kind of persecutory fear that we're going to be mm-hmm. um, destroyed if we have a racist feeling or thought or action. And that is not conducive to any kind of psychoanalytic work, or it's maybe the beginning of a psychoanalytic work. We don't want to end there for sure. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Well, sure, you have people who have arranged their lives to avoid um, uh, uh, it, in his, to avoid a structure of the mind. Exactly. And that just is going to fail. Right, right. Not only fail, but then get enacted. Get enacted. That's right. Yeah, right. That's right. There's a, I'm thinking of the, there was a movie 10, 15 years ago called Crash, and there was two police officers, and one of them I think is Matt Dillon, who's like racist because he's he's out there this is difference and the other cop is just horrified 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 at at his character and of course it's the other cop that ends up killing somebody the one who denies um so then to stay on this because it's so rich and it's in the world right now for you, what are the libidinal investments in racist fantasies? Uh, that that I that term I, I liked from a lot of uh, Derek Hook's work on this about mm-hmm. the kind of libidinal treasures that that racism kind of carries in itself. That we we all we all have these kinds of ways of wanting um, some kind of like uh, enjoyment or some kind of excitement. That when we feel others have it and we don't have it, it almost feels as though they've kind of stolen our libidinal treasures. So mm. when when you see like a, like an example would be like um, my patient who saw like a bunch of like brown skinned people on a train, you know, like with their smells and their their nationalities and their talking and their commotion and all their excitement. It brought up a tremendously um, long, longing feelings and sadness for missing her homeland in the South, where mm. she missed that kind of visceral kind of excitement that she was seeing with them and they're kind of eating their food and talking and being all loud. But she missed that from from those experiences in herself. And then it became an envious attack on them. Right. They had the libidinal treasures, not her. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. it's the, the envy of their jouissance. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And then of course that's enacted with me and in in the in the transference and in the counter-transference with, with us in the room together. Yeah. Um Dread it actually there's two chapters. There's dread and erotic dread. Yeah. Um it, well let's start there. Because <laughs> it's <laughs> sure. erotic dread. What what's the difference between dread and erotic dread? <laughs> uh yeah, I just made those distinctions because I realized that if I wrote a chapter on dread and didn't talk about the erotic, that would be absolutely missing something very vital. So I wanted to make sure that I had a whole section on our erotic dread, which um, I felt was in some ways different than the other chapter, which was more on our dread of our patients. Uh, it was a general chapter, but specifically the case was about suicidality mm-hmm. and our dread of our suicidal patients. So I felt like there were two distinct types of um, experiences, but both lead to dread for sure. Right. In different ways. So, so what do you mean when you write in the dread chapter, you write, I favor a no holds barred approach to dread, which signals an unbearable emotional truth. What, what is a no holds barred approach to dread? Yes. So this I got from a paper that I read when I was in residency given to me by a very strict psychopharmacology, I think he was in the 
the Navy or something beforehand. He was extremely, he actually did a spinal tap in the psyche or he was that hardcore. Mm. And he, I was telling oh, him, this about, is the guy that hated psychoanalysis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. And he, he throws me this article. Cause I was just telling him about how I was having a, t- a tough time with all of the intensity going on in the emergency room. He said, just read this, you know, like this is what you need to know. And it was actually this classic paper from 1974 in the archives of general psychiatry by Maltzbrewer and Bowie on hate, in the suicidal patient, hate in the countertransference with suicidal patients. And they favor a no-holds-barred approach. And I think I kind of borrowed it from that, which is that, you know, and, and their general idea is this, that when we're faced with a suicidal patient, we feel a tremendous amount of rage towards them and a helpless rage. And there are two ways in which we deal with that. One way in which we deal with that, which is the most common way, is we create a kind of aversion where we kind of try to move away from them, either um, literally or even psychologically, where we don't want to be near them. Um, because the other way of dealing with our um, sadistic fantasies and our um, rage towards them is, is, is more wanting to hurt them in the kind of more sadistic, hot-blooded rage. So instead, we favor more a distanced approach. But the more we distance ourselves from our patients, they recognize that. And then they kind of pursue wanting a closeness with them. They become more angry. And then it becomes this cycle of more distance and more pursuit that then create more rage and usually ends up in a very tragic outcome. So what they say is that you really have to understand and know your anger, your sadistic impulses, your feelings, really know yourself and know what you're feeling. And if you do that, then you'll be less prone to act out this kind of aversive response, which actually ends up harming the patient and not allowing Mm. you to really think clearly about what's best for the patient. Yeah. And then you, you write the, the question that we've all asked ourselves in terror. Am I going to be sued? Yes. So for me, I, I, I thought that was really important because I've been struck by my terror of that and my colleagues' terror of that. And what I say in the book, and I, I really think this is true, is we have to separate out two things here. One is uh, the medical legal issues that are very important that we all as clinicians have to follow and have to know and have supervision on. And I mm-hmm. absolutely feel like that is an essential part of our practice. But what I've noticed is often it's this kind of persecutory anxiety um, that almost feels like our patients or somebody is going to actually come and get us, you know, like mm-hmm. like the boogeyman is going to come and attack us. And that to me was very Kleinian and very much in the realm of <laughs> paranoid schizoid position. Yeah. Where where we can't own our feelings of sadism towards our patients, our anger towards them, and all the guilt that we have about, I think, our helplessness, not being able to help them, our anger towards them. It's complicated. I don't mean to mean it just being about anger. But what happens then is I think our disowned guilt then just gets projected into this kind of persecutory anxiety about being harmed and ruined. Yeah. Yeah, and this, again, it's this will go back to well, it's as you said, it's shot throughout the book, and then the the story of your learning to be with your son. How do you be with a a really suicidal patient? Yes. How do you stay with that? Yeah. I've only I've only had to do it twice. It's terrifying. I, I think that's the first step in acknowledging that it's terrifying, and also being able to kind of stay in the discomfort of it mm-hmm. while allowing yourself also to have your own feelings and thoughts about what's happening and not censor them too. So (laughs) in my experience, I allow myself to feel and know all of the fears and all the anger I have, but I also try to keep an empathic link with that patient. And I think that's really important too. You have to find your way back to the patient and their pain and what they're actually experiencing in the room with you. Because I think that when you get too scared with patients, you collapse into your own fear Mm-hmm. And you lose contact with that patient's pain. And then right. we often do these kinds of uh, what I call in the book angry formulations about the patient. They're borderline. They're this. They're that. They're trying to put their rage into me, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that all might be true on some level of discourse. But, you know, often our patients are really just in a lot of pain. Right. And to go back to war in Poland, they're not us. Exactly. And our formulations of them are not them. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, collapsing into ourself is still a type of merger. Ah, uh, yes, good point. Right, you know, imaginal um, merger, right? Mm-hmm. That protects us but leaves the patient out usually. Yeah. 
So, oh, so oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to add one quick thing about this. I also want to make it clear that I'm not saying that we have to sacrifice ourselves for our patients in a kind of masochistic way and always be with them in exactly the way they need us to be there or kind of become um, almost a, a kind of sufferer for our patients. Uh, those are those are also defensive ways in which we're not fully being honest with ourselves. So that, that's another piece of that, too. Oh, sure. And, and I remember reading... Andre Green says that, you know, the analyst's masochism does nothing for the patient. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of saying it. Uh, that's really, <laughs> you know. that's, that, that's, that's succinct and beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, um, and, and, but then we, so that actually, it, in a sense that that takes us to, um, and we'll come back to drug, but that takes us to the chapter on jealousy. Yeah. Um, and I think also can tie into arrogance, right? A patient comes in and says, you know, everybody always abandons me. You're like, well, I'll be the one who doesn't. Mm. Mm-hmm. I will be the good parent, the the better spouse, the better whatever, which is arrogant. But also what the arrogance is, is you can't make that promise. Um, you may want to be that person. Of course, yeah. we want to be maturational. We don't want to, you know, <laughs> repeat. And yet um, it's, it's, it goes back to, it denies the drives. You yeah. Know? It just and it also, right, and it denies the um, triadic experience of life, mm-hmm. which, uh, yeah, I talk about that in the, the jealousy chapter. That there are always others. There's always a third, and uh, it's sometimes it's sometimes um, easy to forget that when we're in such intimate dialogues with our patients. Yeah, and and I've had the. Let's see if I can. I need to obviously disguise this, but a, a patient comes in and says, you know, everybody abandons me my whole life my my parents abandoned me i was put up for adoption and my professors at college and my girlfriend and you know abandoned 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 abandoned. and yeah that wasn't the issue but i asked this is a very uh very first session because it was so thick it was so obvious and i said oh and i said well how are you going to get me to abandon you Mm. and what's amazing is she knew the answer Oh, what did she say? She knew the answer. Um, well, the issue wasn't abandonment, so I can't say what she said. <laughs> right. But it was. She says, "Oh, well, this, 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 and this will happen." And I <laughs> said, "Great. Well, what if, you know, what if, uh, what if I prevent this, 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 and this?" And then she said, "Well, that's that's going to fail." Mm-hmm. Meaning, if I do come at it consciously, I think you say, um, "What's your?" Uh, that, that's a nice moment because in a way you're creating a triadic space with her by asking her to reflect on what's going to happen between the two of you when she gets abandoned. And her knowing the answer creates a kind of triadic truth as opposed to just you two enacting the abandonment. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it, it uh, um, it's good to go back to racism. You know, you write, why are theories of implicit bias incomplete? And the answer is they're rational. They leave out the drives in the unconscious. Yeah. And so asking her, well, how are you going to do it here? Um, she was able to answer it. Um, and that uh, person is still with me. It's 17 years later. <laughs> wow. You know, so, yeah. but, but she knew the answer. Yes. She knew the answer. And, and uh, yeah, that was a moment. What, um, to go back to the dread, erotic dread, what, what is the dread of our own erotic desire to work with patients? What are we dreading? Yeah, so that erotic dread is really the starting point of, of psychoanalysis with uh, both Pop and I. So I, I talk about that in, in a couple of different ways, but I think the way that I highlighted it the most was the dread of our being able to um, have more of a kind of sexual and gender fluidity with our patients that I think sometimes gets lost in heteronormative discourses on transference and countertransference, where there could be a whole panoply of ways in which we can be with our patients and our patients experience us in the uh, realm of the erotic that might be uncomfortable for us to go there with them. Um, because there's this kind of binary terror to use that term. I forget the person mm-hmm. who uses that term. I think Patrika, that there's this way in which, we, we just need the binaries to kind of feel less nervous about this kind of back and forth in this more fluid space 
of, of uh, intimacy and erotic, erotic intimacy, not just intimacy. I think that's important too, because the erotic has a certain charge, which is very frightening and uh, scary for us. Yeah. Um, hmm. I want to, I'm sort of torn here with a binary, of good, but I want to get to um, something that I've never heard before. And I, I think people will be very interested to hear chapter on dissociation mm. and you talk about is dissociation a process or a structure? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like it, 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 dissociation is one of those words that's been used in so many different contexts and in different ways. It's sometimes difficult to pin it down. Um, but I, I think that um, Elizabeth Howell talks about this, actually, this distinction and um, others do in, in that space. And I like that distinction because in some ways, dissociation is is a kind of phenomenology. It's a kind of way of uh, being with unbearable aspects of trauma. But in other ways, it's actually the way in which the psyche operates, too, by disowning and dissociated split-off parts um, and part-object self-relations. So I wanted to make sure that when I talk about our own dissociative processes, which is what the chapter was about, we acknowledge both. Right. And the and you talk again about the ability to receive and contain projective identification. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that can have two parts to it. One is allowing ourselves to kind of notice our dissociative moments with our patients when we're not fully being present in our own body and being responsive to their um, affects and their own somatosensory kind of uh, ways in which they're playing it out with us. And then it could also be a way in which we disown parts of ourselves, like in a dissociative way that we can't let out and be with, like the angry parts of ourselves, the envious parts of ourselves that we kind of disown and push away. Um, <clears throat> the chapter, chapter six is on shame and you, you know, again, ubiquitous and full-blooded. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, of course, um, the Brene Brown TED talk on shame, which has been <laughs> Yeah. A gazillion times. Yeah. Um, it is so pervasive. And <laughs> you give uh, an example in the book, which was, is, is my greatest fear is you double book somebody. Yeah, right. I'm like, that's just my, I mean, uh, I'm obsessed about it. When, you, when, you, when you're doing it, like I've, that, when, when that happens to me, it always, I mean, you hear the door open and you know someone's in your waiting room, but you're with a patient and that's the, yeah. Oh, it's just, I just want to die. I just want to yeah. hide. Exactly. Um, And those are the best words for shame, right? You want to die and you want to hide. Yes. Yep. That's it. So um, I think this is uh, a great uh, way to come to the end here because um, you make the statement, I'm going to turn it into a question. How does shame lie uncomfortably close to the core of psychoanalysis? Yes. So for me, that that is very much the case for both patient and therapist, because uh, the therapeutic process is all about, for me, vulnerability and about two people really being together in a very intimate way where there is an asymmetry there as well. So the asymmetry, the vulnerability, the emotional intimacy, um, it, it just to me is almost a setup for shame because it, it's just kind of baked into the whole process of being vulnerable and intimate with somebody. Um, And it's also about kind of uncovering deep truths and aspects of a person that they are uncomfortable with. And likewise for the therapist, who is also, while the patient is doing that, uncovering their own truths about Mm -hmm. themselves that they don't... I mean, I loved in your interview with uh, Victor Sedlak, he talks about Mm -hmm. this idea that we get pitched forward and our patients push us a little bit further than we want to go as a way of helping us kind of be with where they need to be. If I heard it correctly. And that's kind of this whole, how could that not create shame in us or some worry in us about that? Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, well, your book reminded me of his book. Um, you're, you're working in the same register. He inspired Um, me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's so, so we'll talk about, we'll end here because, you know, shame, but leading to intimacy. I mean, um, he's quoting, I think, Hannah Siegel, That's right. which is truth without kindness isn't really true. Kindness without truth isn't really kind. Um, oh, I love that. 
Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just, it's so beautiful. And, and my, my first analyst um, who had this wonderful thing, he said, you know, aggression is easy. Intimacy is hard. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and I would just add to that. Sometimes being aggressive with someone you're intimate with is hard because it creates yeah. more intimacy actually. Yeah. Yes. That's the hard yes, part. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Um, right. I think, um, and yet, and yet to go back to, well, I, the interview begins as they do what conscious aims to do it. You, you can't write on psychology today. Come and let's be ashamed and intimate together. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe someone will sign up. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so then let's, let's, let's end with that word, you know, at the end of the yes. session, the end of the hour, let's, let's, be, a, let's be ashamed and intimate together. <laughs> let's be ashamed and intimate together. Right. Um, uh, Look, the title of the book, The Analyst's Torment, Unbearable States, <laughs> Mental States and Countertransference, Shame, Dread, Jealousy, Dissociation. Um, why do we do the work? Why Good put question. ourselves through this? Good question. I, I mean, Karen Morota wrote a whole book about this called The Analyst's Vulnerability, and she has some interesting answers about our childhood and how it affects mm -hmm. us to want to be caregivers and all the guilt around that um, and <laughs> omnipotent fantasies. I mean, in, in uh, the, the the three narcissistic snares, right? To want to love all, to heal all, and to know all. That's right. That's I right. love that. You know, once I, once we once once those all break apart, and we're left in kind of ruins of not having those. I think what makes me continue with the work is just the beauty of it, and the place of being able to be so close to human. Um, experience and to be with people mm -hmm. in an authentic way, which let's face it in our modern era is almost like lacking in every respect. Like we have such a privilege to be able to be and accompany our patients through their lives. Um, it is an absolute privilege. That's right. Yeah. Um, what are you working on now? Um, so I, I, I right now I'm thinking about a book about anxiety actually, because I feel like books about anxiety either go way too philosophical or they become almost like manualized treatments for anxiety disorders. And I was hoping to do a book on like uh, just to break down all the different kinds of anxiety and how to work with the anxiety in the clinic, like ontological anxiety, suffocation anxiety, um, panic, um, abandonment anxiety, and, and really kind of talk about how those are different and how they're similar and how to work with them in the clinic. So that's kind of where I was going with it. Um, Good. Well, when it's when when you publish it, will you come back and uh, talk to us about it? Oh, I would love to. Again, I'm a super fan, so this has been oh, a huge honor for me. I, I'm so uh, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, we have been talking with Dr. Dewani Shaw. His new book, "The Analyst's Torment: Unbearable Mental States in Counter Transference." Uh, Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for joining. Thank you.